You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. First John chapter 2, this is the first two verses. He says, my little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A few years ago, there was an article that was released in the New York Times called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It was written by a man named David Brooks. And in the article, he talked about how though the West, and particularly America, has grown more and more secular and away from religious affections through the years, we still have a tremendous amount of what he calls religious guilt to deal with. He wrote, we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Brooks was tapping into a reality that we are all sinners, that we all possess a sin nature, that we all instinctually know what is right and what is good because God has written his moral law on the hearts of human beings, and yet because of our sinful nature, uh, though we know what is right, we don't do what is right. And that tension within us creates this deep and troubling sense of guilt. The world is a place that is full of guilt. There have been recent surveys from various organizations all about guilt, the things that people feel guilty for, that people feel guilty over the food that they eat, over the amount of time that they watch TV, over the way they spend their time in general. And, and it's really, a, in many ways, a paradox uh, for your life and that you can't escape it. For example, you might stay home on a day that uh, you intended to rest, and what you find after three quarters of the day is that you've not rested at all, you've done nothing but house chores, and so you feel guilty about that. On the other hand, you stay home and you rest, and about three quarters of the way through the day, you feel guilty, you've done nothing around the house. There's no escaping it. You feel guilty over the way that you live, over the way that you communicate to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, to your family members. We are every day faced with the problem of guilt. Now, last week, we talked about how the Bible, in many ways, is a blueprint for your life. It both instructs us and it corrects us. It tells us what to do, and it tells us what to do when you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? And John said, if you remember, the central focus of that passage was walk in the light. Walk in the light. Remember verse 5, he said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so we as Christians, we should walk in that light. But, but we don't always. And remember, John made those two statements that almost seemed contradictory. He said, if we say we have fellowship with him, talking about Jesus, while we walk in darkness, we are lying. But on the other hand, if we say we have no sin... We're lying. So you're a liar if you say you have fellowship with Jesus, but you're in sin. You're also a liar if you say you never sin. And, and remember, this, this created this sort of 
puzzling question. What is the answer to this? How do we deal with this? If we can't have fellowship with Jesus while we're in sin, but we're also going to inevitably sin at different points in our lives, what do we do when we don't do what we're supposed to do? And verse 9 gave us the answer. You confess your sins, and and John said that when you do that, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was last week, so if you weren't here, kind of a primer on what we talked about, because this week what we're going to do is we're going to continue in that line of thought. John is going to continue to carry on the ramifications of this. How is this possible? So this morning what I want us to do is I want us to to talk about what makes Jesus able to do these things. John says he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. What gives Jesus the ability to provide that kind of forgiveness of sin? Chapter 2 gives us the answer to that question. John spells out how Jesus' ministry, understand this, continues beyond the cross. So Jesus pays for your sin in full. It's final. It's done. It is your, it is, the debt is canceled. But his ministry in your life doesn't stop there. It continues on on a day-to-day basis as you live your life. So let's jump in. We're going to see where these two little verses take us this morning. How is it that Jesus relates with his people in the present day? If you're a Christian, how does Jesus relate to you in your day-to-day life? First, John is going to tell us he is our advocate. He is our advocate. Now, verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with uh, sort of a reiteration of the reason for why John wrote this letter to begin with. He says in verse 1, my little children, and I love that he calls us little children. It's one of the only times I can think of in my life where being called a little child doesn't feel sort of denigrating, right? I, I take it to mean that he's being very serious when he says this. Uh, At this point, John was an elder in his community. He was looked to for wisdom and guidance, and he took this responsibility very seriously. Many of the other apostles had already died by this point, and so John took this this mantle of being an elder and being a leader and being an apostle very seriously. He saw the people of God as children who needed to be loved and instructed and and guided in their faith. And so he says in verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That is so key. I want you to get that. If you want to know the single reason for why John writes this letter, it's right there. So that you may not sin. So important. Last week we talked about how if you do sin, you're to confess your sin. And and there is grace for that whenever you fall short. But, But John wants to reiterate to you the reason he's writing this letter so that you don't walk away with the idea that you can just sin whenever you want because God's grace is going to cover you. Like it's a free pass to just do whatever you want to do. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Not at all. No chance. How can we who died to sin, he says, still live in it? We can never, I want you to to wrap your mind around this. We can never let the beauty of God's grace dilute the severity of sin. There is a tension that we have to live in as Christians that both embraces the full beauty of grace but also recognizes the the devastation that comes with sin. You could say it this way. Think of it this way. Grace is sufficient to cover our sin, but it's never an excuse to continue in it. Grace is sufficient to cover our sin. It's never an excuse to continue in it. Never be tricked into thinking that sin is not a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a very big deal, and John wants to reiterate that to you. But then look at the very next phrase in verse 1. But if anyone does sin, 
<laughs> right? It's kind of like, I'm glad he said that because we're all sitting around kind of looking at each other like, who's going to tell him? Am I going to tell him or are you going to tell him? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So get this, don't sin. Do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you to resist it. But if you do, there is good news that you have an advocate who will speak on your behalf. Now, what does this mean? The term here, advocate, it's the Greek term parakletos, and it means one who pleads the cause for another. One who pleads the cause for another. It's used in classical Greek often to um, convey something that takes place in a legal sense. So almost like an attorney, someone who would stand up in a legal proceeding on behalf of the person being charged to plead their case for them. So uh, for example, imagine you have been charged with a crime. In this case, it is a crime that you did commit because we're all sinners. And you've pleaded with the judge who is God the Father. You've pleaded for mercy. You've, You've pleaded for forgiveness. Right before the judgment is handed down, someone stands up and says, judge, I would like to speak on their behalf. And that person gets up and they begin to advocate for you. John is telling us that person who's advocating for you is Christ, Jesus. Now here's the interesting thing about this. This is not the first time that we've seen this term parakletos in John's writings. It's the first time we've seen it in this letter, but remember, John has authored more than this letter. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but prior to this, he wrote the gospel according to John. It was the last of the four gospels to be written. Of course, he also wrote at the very end, Revelation, everyone's favorite, but in John's gospel, chapter 14, there's a section where Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He's actually really kind of preparing them because he knows at this moment that the cross is becoming more and more imminent and that he is going to go and suffer and die and conquer death and go to be with the heavenly father. And, and, and in this moment, he is sort of preparing his disciples for that because they have no idea what's going on basically at all times, right? Just a bunch of idiots. I mean, he even prays that way. He's like, Father, thank you for these idiots that you've given me. I mean, it's a, it's a rough translation of the Greek, but it's, it's in there. And in verse 15, he says, this is important, we need to hear this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week, because this is going to come up in our passage for next week. Basically, if you love Jesus, you will obey him. You won't get it perfect. Remember uh, 1 John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, so we cannot say we're going to do this perfectly, but if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandment. There'll be a desire for it. It's going to change your heart towards sin. It's going to change your desire towards these things. You're going to get it right some of the time because when you love someone, you want to honor them. That's how love works, and so your obedience is is not to try to get Jesus to love you but it's an outpouring of your love for him. But then look at his next words in verse 16. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says, I'm gonna go to the Father, I'm gonna go on your behalf, I'm gonna ask the Father, and he's going to send for you another helper. Now, what is this a reference to? The Holy Spirit, absolutely. Now this little phrase, another helper, is packed with meaning. And so I want to break it down because you're going to see how this pours into uh, 1 John chapter 2. Look at the word another first. It's a fascinating word in the Greek language. Uh, is that Beastie Boys? Am I hearing Beastie Boys over there? That's okay. If you're going to interrupt church, do it at least with good music, right? Yeah. Good, all right. Uh, the word another is, uh, it's, it's actually very fascinating. There's, there's a couple of words in Greek 
And I'm going to have that song stuck in my head all day. I have to go listen to it. There's two words in Greek that can be translated as another, alos and heteros. And both of them, when translated, typically in the English, just are translated as another. But there's a subtle difference between the two, and they're used very intentionally depending on the context of the passage. Heteros means another of a different kind. Another of a different kind. So, for example, if I had a bag of M&Ms and I were giving them to my kids like a good, good father, um, and the youngest of my children, Lydia, is like, Dad, I want more, and the bag is empty, I might say, here, let me give you another piece of candy, but it's from like the Skittles, right? It's another, but it's of a different kind. It's not the same kind. But then this word alas, it's a word that means another of the same kind. It's the same substance. Now, which of these two words do you think are used here in John 14, 16? The same, yes, alas. The same, the same kind, the same substance. You could think of verse 16 more literally as the Father is going to send you another helper of the same kind as Jesus, the same substance as Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to come to God's people in the absence of Jesus, but he's going to be the same kind as Jesus. Now, look at the word helper. This is the Greek term, parakletos. It's the same exact word we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. In other words, the Holy Spirit is our advocate, Jesus says, but Jesus, another of the same kind, is also our advocate. Both of them serve to advocate for us. Both of, both of them serve us, service us as an advocate, but in different environments and in different contexts, different purposes. So the Holy Spirit is our advocate as we face the hostile world that we live in, in the midst of. When we face persecution, when we face trial for your faith, the Holy Spirit is going to speak for you on your behalf by recalling Jesus' words in that very moment. Have you ever had that happen to you, by the way? Where you were pressed by someone for some reason, you were having to kind of stand on your faith, and, and God just straight up gave you the words in that moment to say, you're like, man, I... I didn't even know I could say that, right? Like you couldn't even believe that just came out of your mouth. That's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit is gonna do. Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. He says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He's gonna give you the words as your advocate as you face this hostile world. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't advocate for us before a hostile world, but before the Father in heaven. So whenever you sin, you violate God's law, and because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, your sin becomes an infraction against God's perfect law. And so Christ, in those moments, stands up and advocates for you to the Father on your behalf. So get the imagery here for a moment. You as a Christian, you live in the world. And it is a hostile world, and you're to be a light in the world, right? But it's a hostile world, and so you're going to be uh, persecuted, you're going to face trials, and as you are pressed by the world, the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside you and advocate for you on your behalf by giving you the words that you need in those moments to testify to the truthfulness of the gospel in Jesus' ministry. But there are going to be times as you're being pressed in those moments when you are weak and you will sin, and so as you confess those sins, Christ also comes alongside you and advocates for you, not to the world, but to the Father, to remind him that you've been cleansed by his blood. Now, how can Jesus do this? John calls him, in verse 1, Jesus Christ 
the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, some of your translations read. It's the Greek term dikaios. It's a word that means the innocent or the just. The innocent or the just. So, so get this. Jesus is not just any advocate. He's not just any old person who can stand up and testify on your behalf, plead your cause on your behalf. Jesus is the perfect advocate. There is no infraction against him whatsoever. He is perfectly righteous before God. So God is light. In him there is no darkness, and when we sin, therefore, we're not able to stand before him because darkness cannot be in the presence of God's light, but Christ is able to stand before him because he is the righteous. So in those moments of weakness, when we sin, we confess our sin to him and to one another, and he is able to go before the Father on our behalf as the perfect righteous advocate. One of the reasons why I think that the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary, particularly as an intercessor, is so offensive to Christian doctrine is because of this right here, because of what John is laying out. And this, this idea that Mary can intercede on behalf of Christians, it's based on the fact that uh, Christ is king, which makes Mary the queen mother, which is a, something that we do see a little bit of in the Old Testament with regard to kings and their moms. I think it's a little bit of a stretch to apply it uh, to the New Testament. Uh, but, but there is this concept that Mary can't, you know, she can ask Jesus to do things and Jesus won't say no to her because he loves his mama. Now that's a sweet sentiment. Um, but there are problems with this. Apart from the fact that it's nowhere in the Bible, um, it both unnecessarily elevates Mary to a position she's not qualified to hold while robbing Jesus of his glory. Mary cannot intercede for you. You need to know that. No one, understand this, no one can intercede for you except for the Holy Spirit of God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Only Jesus before the Father is able to do this because he is perfectly righteous. And get this, this is where we're going, his ability to advocate for you is based on more than just simply who he is. He can do these things. He can advocate not only based on who he is as the Son of God, but on what he has done. And, and so John moves to this second role of Christ in uh, this second chapter. He is not only our advocate, he is our atoning sacrifice. Look at verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let's get it right out of the way up front. What in the world does this word mean? Propitiation. Drop that into a casual conversation with your Christian friends and watch them think of you as a theologian. It's the Greek term hilasmos, and it is traditionally translated as propitiation. The ESV, the English Standard Version, that's the Bible that I preach out of, um, pretty much exclusively. I do some from the NIV um, and some from a couple of other translations, but usually if you're going to hear me read scripture, if I have my actual Bible here out and I am reading it, uh, it is an ESV, an English Standard Version. It translates this as propitiation. The King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible all follow suit. Uh, propitiation. There are other translations, the New International Version, the NIV, and the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, that choose to translate hilasmos as atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice. And the reason for this, they argue, uh, is that the word hilasmos conveys 
It conveys propitiation, so they're not trying to take it away. There was this whole controversy like 10 or 15 years ago where, where people were accusing the NIV of trying to get rid of propitiation. I don't think that's what they were doing. They're, they're not saying that helosmos doesn't convey propitiation. They're saying that it conveys more than propitiation. In other words, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus accomplishes a much wider spectrum of things than only propitiation, which is why I actually prefer this translation, atoning sacrifice, more, and I'll explain why as we go through this. Let's talk about propitiation first, because it is absolutely present, I think, in the word hilosmos. What, what does propitiation mean? It's a word that means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the fullest extent. It bears God's wrath to the fullest extent. So a propitiating sacrifice becomes then the object upon which God's wrath is fully poured out on. So we read last week that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Not only is there no darkness in him, but God actually hates the darkness because God hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, it says, there are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Uh, surprisingly, the, the, the Philadelphia Eagles are not one of them. I don't, I don't know how that didn't make the list, but they're all sins. They're all sins. Yeah, you and your Eagles jerseys. They're all sins. Proverbs 8.13, it goes on, it says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. I think this is very fascinating because we talk about the fear of the Lord a lot as the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. This is what the book of Proverbs says very clearly. But the fear of the Lord is also hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. God hates sin. It's very clear in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, it says that his wrath is burning against sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he hates sin. His wrath is burning against everyone who participates in this sin. Now, that presents a problem, does it not? Because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That means that apart from Christ and his saving work on our own, we not only have a sin nature that seeks to destroy us, that wants to destroy you, but God's wrath is still over you as well. Now, folks, this is very bad news, but it's the perfect backdrop for very good news, which is that though these things are true, faith in Christ removes this wrath. John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So when you believe the gospel, you receive eternal life, but more than that, you're also no longer under the wrath of God. Are you following me so far? Now here's the question, the theological question. What happens to God's wrath that was intended and stored up for me and my sin? Where does it go? Does it just dissipate into vapor? Does God just go... We're good, bud. This bump. All is forgiven. Propitiation explains where God's wrath goes. It explains that it goes on to Jesus Christ. So Jesus as the propitiating sacrifice becomes the object upon which God's wrath is poured out into its fullest extent. When, what Peter means uh, in 1 Peter 
2, 24 explains exactly this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul in Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's a stand-in. He's a substitute in our place to take upon himself that which was intended for me, but is now put on to him. Did you know that in China, there is a practice, uh, it's technically illegal, although it is uh, practiced still by the uh, richest people in the country, called Ding Zui, which is literally like to take the punishment or pin the blame, something like that. Um, it's a practice whereby the richest people in China, when they are charged with a crime that they committed, are able to pay poor people to take the blame for them and pay out the sentence. Yeah. So uh, there's been a couple of cases, well-known cases, um, that have leaked out of China. Of course, a lot of this is, is very kept, you know, censored in. But uh, there's been a couple of politicians in the last 10 to 15 years who have been, um, it, it's been very clear that they were guilty of some kind of crime, killing someone, burning someone's house down, that kind of stuff. And um, they have paid a, uh, the, the poorer people of their society to stand in, take the blame, and get X amount of, of money every day that you spend in prison for that sentence. They're a stand-in. They take the punishment for you. That's what Jesus does for us. Your reaction is actually so telling when I, when I say that, that, that that actually happens in the real world. You're, you kind of gasp, right, in, in like, how could that happen? That's the response to the gospel. How could Jesus do this? How, how, how could that happen? How could a, an innocent person stand in the place of a guilty person and take the full brunt of punishment and conviction that this other person was supposed to get and this person just gets off free? That seems, that seems not right. But this is what Christ does for us. He becomes a stand-in. He takes upon himself the full weight of God's wrath that we might have life. Now maybe this seems inconsequential to you in terms of like how does this really apply but you need to understand about why this makes so much, uh, why, why this is so important given who God is. It seems like when we talk about things like, like wrath, wrath seems unloving, doesn't it? We don't like to hear about God's wrath. That doesn't, that's, not the kinda, that's not the part of God I want to know about. I want to know about the mercy and the love and the grace and the compassion, right? But God is also a God of justice, the Bible says. And so while wrath seems unloving, allowing sin to go unpunished is also unjust. And because God is both a God of love and also a God of justice, the sin has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for. God isn't just going to like, yeah, we'll just kind of forget that happened. That would make him unjust. So God, in his loving kindness, sends his son Jesus to become the object of his wrath towards sin in our place to satisfy his justice so that we might have life. This is why God's love is, is often described as radical, the links that God goes through to both satisfy his justice towards sin but also pardon the sinner are extreme. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he talks about proclaiming Christ crucified, and he says that it's a stumbling block to the Jews. That term stumbling block, it's the Greek term scandalon. It's the word from which we get our word scandalous. The gospel seems scandalous. How could a just God possibly love sinful people? How could that be? 
He can love us because he's adequately dealt with his wrath through the propitiation of his son Christ. That's the first word that I think is bound up in helosmos, atoning sacrifice. But there's another word as well that I think is conveyed in this, and that's the term expiation. So you have propitiation, and you have expiation. Now what is expiation? Expiation is a sacrifice that fully nullifies the offense. It fully no- So understand that the propitiation deals with the punishment that comes down for the offense, Expiation fully nullifies the offense in its entirety. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he's not only taking upon himself God's wrath, the fullness of God's wrath, but he's also taking away the need for future sacrifice. So there's never, like, once you receive forgiveness, what happens the next time you sin? Do you need to be born again again? And then born again again again? No, because it's been expiated. It's been fully nullified. I read it a moment ago, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think really captures both of these quite nicely. He says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's the propitiation part. Christ becomes sin, takes the fullness of God's wrath upon him. But then look at what else he says. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In exchange for this punishment, for this substitute, we have fellowship with God. Our debt is canceled. It's been paid in full. Christ takes the fullness of the wrath that was meant for us, we take the fullness of his righteousness upon to us. So think of it this way. Propitiation is for God. Expiation is for us. His sacrifice works in two different directions. God's wrath must be satisfied. That's propitiation. I need my sin fully nullified. That's expiation. Now come back to the text for a moment, 1 John 2.2, and let's read it again with this understanding. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation and expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Good news, right? No one goes to hell. The whole world gets saved. Is that what he's saying? No, that's that's certainly not what he's saying. We know that is true because of the rest of the Bible. What does the whole world mean then? How How are we to interpret this? During this time, Jesus is seen as a Jewish savior. He is the Jewish Messiah. And John's point here is that this act, this atoning sacrifice of both propitiation and expiation is not intended to be only a Jewish event. It's a global event. It's not every single person in the world that is going to receive this. That would mean, again, that all are saved, and Jesus himself said that's not true. Broad is the way, right? But narrow is the way, and there are few who find it. So it's not that every person is going to find this atoning sacrifice and believe the gospel and and have it applied over them. The point is that it's not a Jewish affair, it's a global affair. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue is going to be represented in the kingdom. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. But when you sin, there's a problem, it presents an issue. John is going to say, you need to confess your sins, first and foremost, not only to God, but to someone else. And Christ, when you do that, he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But how is he able to do that? Because he's our advocate to the Father. He stands in our place and he advocates for us. He pleads our cause to the Father. And get this, he doesn't plead our cause with empty words, but he points to the completed work that he has already done on the cross. 
by reminding the Father, I have propitiated your wrath towards them fully in my body, and I have expiated their sin. It is no longer binding. It is paid in full, canceled, forgiven. There's nothing more. There's nothing more. They can have fellowship with you. Folks, this is the gospel. Some of you, as Christians, you struggle with a tremendous amount of guilt in your life every day. And, and you need to hear John's words in this to be reminded that there is no guilt on you anymore. You have been forgiven. God's wrath has been satisfied. And your infraction against him, past, present, and future, has been nullified. When we walk in guilt and shame over the sin that we have been forgiven of, we're calling into question the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. His sacrifice is enough for you. It is enough to nullify your transgressions. It is enough to satisfy God's wrath. We should never question that. And so rest in the beauty of God's grace. Don't use grace as an excuse or a license to continue to sin. But if you understand the full weight of what's been done for you by Christ on your behalf, then grace is this freeing and beautiful thing that we can bask in until we see him face to face. Some of you are not Christian. Some of you have never believed the gospel. You feel the sense of guilt because there is guilt over you still. God's wrath has not been satisfied. Your, your sin has not been fully nullified. And what I want you to know this morning is that it is not too late for you to believe the gospel and be born again and to have your wrath satisfied and to have your sin nullified completely. I want to read one last passage to you. It's from Romans chapter 9. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's, he, he poses a hypothetical question that's, that's true. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying that what if God, desiring to show how powerful he really is, has put a sort of dam in front of his wrath? It's there, and it's being built up, but it's not being poured out. It's being withheld so that these vessels of mercy, these people to whom he has called to himself to believe the gospel, would have time to repent of their sin and confess Christ as Lord and Savior and be born again. That, that he's prepared a window of time in eternity where the wrath is being stored up and one day that dam is going to break loose and it's going to pour out and it is going to be this horrible, epic nightmare on the world. Revelation describes it pretty wildly. But we're not there yet. There's, a there's time still which is why the Bible says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. If you hear the, that voice of the Holy Spirit this morning, and you know, man, I know I'm guilty. I know I, know I have sin, and I've never dealt with it, and I've never believed the gospel. Then I implore you this morning, believe it. Confess Christ as your Savior. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Your sin will be propitiated, God's wrath canceled, 
and nullified, expiated, clean slate, able to stand in the presence of God as one of his own. I'm gonna ask you this morning, don't, don't waste another day. Don't waste your life. Make today the day that you believe, that you enter into the kingdom as his beloved son or daughter. Pray with me. Father, we are just astounded at the links that you have gone through to both satisfy your justice, but also demonstrate your loving kindness towards us. And we see that in the broken body, the shed blood of your son Jesus on the cross. And we rejoice, God, that in this sacrifice, not even death could hold him down. And that beyond this cancellation of wrath and record, we also are guaranteed resurrection and new life, eternity with you. I pray, God, that that your spirit would this morning really bring a sense of, of healing and encouragement to the hearts of your people who struggle with the sense of guilt on a day-to-day basis, that, that they would see how, how satisfactory Christ's death and sacrifice really is for us. And I pray for those this morning who have never believed, that they would hear your voice and surrender and confess you as Lord, be born again with the power of your Holy Spirit. That's a work that only you can do. We desire to see that this morning in the hearts of those people here. How we love you, how we thank you for calling us out of darkness and into light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Are you getting the sense of how simple Christianity really is when you just sort of distill it down to its basic elements? We believe the resurrection. It's true, it's a, it's a real thing that happened with real world consequences. The resurrection conveys everything that we just talked about and so as we live as Christians, we walk in the light, we, don't, we avoid sin, we resist it through the power of the Spirit but when we do, God's given us a great way, a very practical way of handling it by confessing it to him and to one another and trusting that Christ, our advocate, is going to heal us, cleanse us and forgive us of every transgression. It's a beautiful thing. We'll see you next week. God bless you.